Still the, the theme of the message comes through in the song uh, uh, that we will forever be His, and that's only through His amazing grace. Um, I said this last time I, I feel the pull for weathers. I feel like uh, we as a church kind of mislead you a little bit because you get a, we tell you Carlton's preaching, but then, you know, you get the wrong Carlton. So, uh, so we, we kind of catch you off guard there. It's really unusual for us having two Carltons all my life. I've never been around another Carlton, and I still find myself after knowing him for six or seven years when we're in the same room, someone else says Carlton, I still don't know what to do with that. You know, we, um, it's kind of been a joke uh, in our uh, leadership meetings. I've started calling everybody by their last name. You know, I, you know, it's Acker and Weathers because I, I, it's confusing otherwise. So, um, but uh, this morning um, we are going to have some uh, bullet points. But I, I really uh, am going to jump around a little bit because uh, my message is more topical and um, uh, less expositional, although I hope we exposit as we go through this. Uh, but if you were looking for a place, because I know you guys like to be comfortable and what, and we all like to do the same thing regular. If you're looking for a place to hang out, we're going to be looking primarily in James 4. So if you want to, if you want to have your Bible open to something, I promise you we're eventually going to get there. Although we're going to put some other scriptures before you as we uh, go along. Uh, and hopefully those will be up on the screen. So you can either flip to them if that's what your desire, or you can kind of read along, uh, in them as we, as we go. Um, uh, once heard a story of, uh, about a pastor who was relating a story about a conversa- conversation he had with a man who was who professed to be a Christian but uh, wasn't attending church anywhere. And uh, the pastor was concerned about the gentleman, so he spent a good bit of time talking with him and asking him, you know, why he was in the position he was in and why he uh, did not attend church. And uh, Finally, finally got around after talking with a guy for quite a bit of while and said, well, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And the pastor's response was, that sounds great. You'd fit right in. Obviously, the pastor's point was that uh, if you go to church, you know, we, we go to church because we have a relationship with Christ. But uh, unfortunately, a lot of what the world sees is we go to church just to say what you should do and shouldn't do. We get this list of do's and don'ts. And if you've got this holy standard of living, the pastor's point is everybody in the church is going to fail against that because there was only one that was righteous, uh, one that was holy. So as I was um, trying to get something to kind of get us in the, in, the, in the mode of thinking about what's going on, what, the message that I was going to bring this morning, uh, and if you're looking for a title, it's Cultivating Community. It's about community in the church. I thought about, you know, we're a community of people that do things wrong consistently. Isn't that encouraging that we're a community of getting things wrong consistently? And so that kind of relates to the, pa- the message about the pastor and the man who said, I don't want to go to church with a bunch of hypocrites. Well, you're going to have a tough time finding one that doesn't do a lot of things wrong. That's just part of who we are. It's part of our humanness. And so over the past few years, you know, we've this church has grown from a group of 15 or so families that were having Bible study together in somebody's house, maybe one night a week to. uh, And I don't know what the exact numbers are, but round numbers. There's probably 150 plus of us that attend here on and off. If you count the children and, and the folks that are in here. 
uh, and we interact with other with, with each other not just one time a week, but we have Sunday morning Bible study. We have a connection points class. We have the worship service. We have children's ministry. We have music team practice. We have work days at the church. We've had multiple of those getting ready to get in here. Uh, home Bible fellowship, women's Bible study, men's Bible study, other group Bible studies, other individual discipleships, uh, homeschool co-op, missions activities. She said, what are you saying? Are you saying this church is all that? No, that's not what I'm saying. Think about how many times we have to interact with one another if we're together all that time. Uh, a lot of opportunity to interact. So what I'm, the point is we've developed into a fairly good-sized community as a church. So if the title of the message is Cultivating Community or How to Cultivate Community, the, 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 maybe the first place to start is what is a community? What, what, what does that mean? Uh, Webster defines it as a unified body of individuals. Pretty simple definition, right? Unified, same purpose. Uh, individuals, a lot of differences. Uh, think about how different we are. Um, well, I could say, just turn to the person to your right, to your left, to your front, or your back, and you will find someone very different than you are. We have a great deal of differences. Uh, some of us are more different than others, aren't we? We're, uh, some of us are very different, and I include myself in that. You know, we're male, we're female, we're tall, we're short, we're large, we're small. We're introverts, we're extroverts, we're aggressive, we're passive, uh, we're direct, we're indirect. I'll stop there. As you can see, the list goes on and on. We are a, 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 everybody in this room is a complete individual. God made us all individually. So that part we've got down pat, unity. Let's talk about that for a minute. Well, for, before I go to unity, uh, let's expand on the differences. In Colossians 3.11... Listen to the description of the differences that Paul talks about and see if they are as strong a differences as I, we just got talk, talking about with us. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian or Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and is all and in all. They were all different, just like we are, but yet they were unified. They were unified in Christ because he is all and it and in all. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, just expanding on that unity part of our community definition. Uh, there is, listen to the ones in here. There is one body, one spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and in all. Did you hear all those ones? Did you hear the unity in that? He's talking about the church. The unity of his church was so important that Christ himself specifically prayed for it. John 17, 18 through 23. He prayed this. Listen to his prayer uh, for the disciples and for the church. As you sent me into the, into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. How comforting. I in them and you in me, that they may be they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Did you catch that? Why were we perfect, perfected in unity? What's the purpose of the unity? So that the world may know that you sent me. So that the world may know Christ. Uh, Christ isn't praying, just so to clarify, he's not praying that we become uniform. Did you catch that? He didn't ask us, he's not asking us to be uniform, he's asking us to be unified. What's the difference? You know, when I think of uniformity, I think of clones. I think of school uniforms. Everything's got to be alike. That's not the point. The point is all of our differences come together to make us a family, to move toward our common goal. The common goal is what we're unified over. So community is an interacting group of people with a unified purpose. An interacting group, does that describe us? An interacting group of different people with a unified purpose. And our unified purpose is Christ. We're one in Christ. So my next point is, We're community, we're a bunch of individuals, and in our community, conflict is inevitable. It's going to happen. Remember all those possibilities we mentioned at the front, uh, possibilities to meet? Uh, Think about all the interactions that they represent. There's interactions from our congregation people to be meeting us, anybody in the congregation, to interact with someone else in the congregation. There's opportunities for the congregation to interact with staff, with leaders, with deacons. There's opportunities for the leadership to interact with one another. The list could go on and on and on. We're going to interact with one another because we are a community. And because we are interacting, we're going to have an opportunity to step on one another's toes. It's just going to happen. We're going to, it could be because someone else was too sensitive or because we're too sensitive. It could be because uh, one of us said the wrong words or the other one said the wrong words. Our, sto- our toes are going to get stepped on. So if we know what a community is, and if we agree that conflict is inevitable, and we'll come back to that a little bit more in a bit, bit, what is conflict? What are you talking about? You know, conflict is a broad term. If you think about what conflict means, uh, some examples, think about it. Conflict could be something as light as uh, we had a difference of opinion. You know, that's that's the nice way of saying we had a disagreement. We had uh, a minor disagreement. We had some disharmony. We had some discord, or maybe we had a downright argument. You know, so we really got down to it. We had an argument. Maybe we had a dispute, or a quarrel, or a battle, or, or maybe we had an all-out war. You know, maybe there was an all-out war. We've we've all been exposed to those. So, for our purpose, we kind of need to define what what conflict is, and it's broad. It's all of those things. Uh, Webster defines conflict as a competitive or opposing position of persons that gives rise to action. Opposing position of persons that gives rise to action. Any action. So really the central idea is that you've got an opposition and they, ta- and they take action. One or both take action against the other. It's the degree of action that we kind of box conflict in. We think of conflict normally in the English language as something great big. But it could be minor 
It could be I didn't like the way someone looked at me. You know, I didn't, you know, they gave me the bad look or something. Any kind of conflict. So for our purpose, when I use the word conflict today, in the broadest sense, don't narrow it down to something minor, something major, any kind of conflict. So we know what community is. We know we're going to have conflict. Um, Where does conflict come from? Uh, Let's go to James 4. I told you I'd eventually get you there. James 4, we're going to look at 1 through 6. Source of our conflict. He starts off and says, What is the source of our quarrels and conflicts among you? Isn't it great when you got a question and it's just laid out for you right there in the Bible that doesn't take a whole lot of searching? You know, he asked the question, What's the source? That was our question. We want to know what the source is. Don't know if I'm going to like the answer, but I am going to find out what the answer is. So what's the source of our quarrels and our conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously, jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So our question is, what's the source of our quarrels? Why do we conflict other than the fact that we're different? Verse 1, he kind of, James kind of gives you the rhetorical question that kind of points the fingers at us, doesn't it? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? Isn't it inside of you? He expands the idea in three. You ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with the wrong motives. What is our motive? It's not right. If we're really honest, it's usually selfishly motivated. It's usually about us. And then he really nails that down in 6. He says, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's pride. It's the pride in us. It's the selfishness in us. That's, what the op- that's where it comes from. That's what God is opposed, uh, opposed to. You know, we've talked about this on several different occasions here. It seems to continually come up. The original sin was a sin of pride. The original sin. Adam and Eve wanted to elevate themselves closer to God. So you can say, I want to bring man up or I want to bring God down. Either way you look at it, it's an unhealthy outlook about who we are. We're not humble. We're prideful. If God continues to grow our church numerically, we're going to continue to have conflict. So... As we increase our opportunities to work together, to study together, to disciple together, to interact with one another, it's going to happen. So let me, let me just take a point. I don't want to give you guys the wrong idea. This is not a message, and I almost did this at the beginning, but I kind of wanted to build it a little bit. This is not a message where we sit together in a room and says, Oh, woe is us. We've got all this calamity going on in church. We better get up in the pulpit and put a stop to it. That's not what's going on. Uh, What's really going on is in my heart, if I'm just putting it all on the table, I have noticed over the past 
several months that there's this continuing, continually uh, prevalent thing where people are getting together and communicate with one another and it provides the opportunity for us to get, go the wrong way. It's not that we've got any one issue that we need to deal with. But it's, it's that it's going to happen. Hopefully, God continues to grow us. Hopefully, we continue to study together and disciple together and do things together that we should be doing in our community. Hopefully, when we get to the, uh, those issues where we step on one another's toes, hopefully we're prepared for that. So this is not a message in response to something that's going on. This is a preventative message. This is let's look ahead and be ready for when it gets here. Because it's going to come. And I think you'll see that as we move forward. So we know that conflict within our community is, is inevitable. The question is not what we'll do if it happens. The question is what are we going to do when it happens? It's going to happen. So to answer that, I kind of want to focus in on the main thing. The thing that gives us the most trouble. Most of you probably know what it is. Community's number one offender. We all got one, and I'm the only one in the room using it right now. It's the tongue. The tongue's one of the greatest powers that God has given us. Think about it. With the tongue, man can praise God. He can pray. He can preach the word. He can lead the lost to Christ. He can encourage. But with that same tongue, he can tell lies that can ruin a man's reputation. He can crush someone's spirit. He can break a person's heart. He can encourage or lead someone towards sin instead of away from it. The same piece of equipment can do both. James 3.2 says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, we're all sinners. We all sin in many ways. So if I took a survey of the room, and we're not going to do that, by the way. The ushers are not bringing forth the sin sheets for you all to fill out. But if I surveyed the room, the list of sins would be be as varied as we are. But we would all have one common sin. We all sin with our tongues. That's what 3.2 says. So did you also catch what it says in there? If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. So how many perfect men are there? None. Not, no, not one. There was only one that was perfect, and that was Christ. So if there are no perfect men, then we all must stumble in our words. That's how I got to the point that I said we all commonly are going to sin with our tongues, every one of us. Uh, in 1 Peter 2.22, it says, uh, speaking of Christ... Uh, He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. If you'll think about the level of perfection that that is, not only did he not commit those sins that were on the piece of papers that we didn't send out, but he didn't even sin with his tongue. He was the only perfect one. So if you're able to bridle the tongue, you could bridle the whole body. We can't do either one of those. We can't bridle the tongue, nor can we bridle the body. We're not going to be perfect. In James 1.26, it says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religious religion is worthless. Did you catch what his point is there? Do you remember what we 
what is the unity in community? What is our unity? It's Christ. And if we don't watch our tongues, the purpose that we're unified over is worthless. Does that raise the level of importance of what we do with that thing? So we've established that we're a community. We've established that the community's got a unified purpose. We've established that as we go about doing community, we're going to individually interact with each other, and we're going to have differences. We're going to step on one another's toes. Interaction, that conflict is inevitable. Uh, We define conflict. We've identified where it comes from, and we know that it's within us. So how can we limit the lifespan of conflict if we know it's going to be there? Uh, To minimize it, we're going to look at two things. We've got to watch our tongues closely, and so how do we do that? Two primary things to keep our eye on. Uh, Motive and method. I gave you two M's. Motive and method, so you can remember them real easy. So if we're going to accomplish our goal, we know what the source of our conflict is, and it's within us. So if sin is within us, is there really anything that we can do about that sin that's within us to get rid of it? Just so that I don't get you on a works-based theology. In other words, I'm going to muster up the faith or the ability to watch my tongue. I'm going to muster up the faith. Remember, the, the, the mouth is evidence of what's in my heart. And if I'm sinful in my heart, it's not within me in and of myself to stop that sin, to shut it down. Only Christ can do that. So it's not within me to always change my motive. Christ is the one that has to get me to do that. I'm not going to do it in, in and of myself. Remember what it said back in James 3? That uh, we are, it talked about our improper motives. We've got to guard against our improper motives. So if the sin is within me, and if I'm going to guard against that sin, how do I do that? How do, any sin for that matter, but specifically improper motives, um, it's difficult. Um, you know, it's even more difficult in the heat of battle, isn't it? Didn't our tongue get a little looser when we get a little agitated? Don't we really kind of show our true colors when we... Get a little angry. So we can't do it on our own. We've got to turn to God to do it. Two things. Two disciplines that you guys all know about, and I'm going to say them, and you're going to say, boy, that was real informative. The first one uh, is prayer. Uh, James, in verse 5 of uh, James 1, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given Unto him, in in chapter one, he's really talking about trials. Isn't a conflict a trial? Isn't it just one of the many? So, if you want to know what to do in a trial, James says, "Ask of God, and He will give you the wisdom." Now, remember what I said about the heat of battle. Do you really think when we're in the heat of battle, our first thought's going to be, "Let's pray about this"? No, our first thought's going to be someone just stepped on my toes and that pride's going to rear its ugly head in my heart and now I've got to get back at what I've I, I got to break even. Right? I've got to work this deal out. We are to pray. I know it's something you already know, but our pride puts us at enmity with God. And in preparation for the conflict that's coming, we are to spend time in prayer. God changed my heart. 
even in preparation for going to resolve a conflict. Think about it. How differently might we approach someone if our prayer prior to walking in the door to discuss it with them is, Lord, change one of us, whichever one is wrong. That very possibly might be me. Do you see how that goes to motive? Do you see how my heart is changed because I'm asking God to change me? We want God to take the action inside of us uh, to correct our motive. The second thing that we uh, must spend time doing, other than consistently praying, guarding our heart, guarding our motive, is we must spend time in Bible study. I know, again, you say, well, that's just great news. I came to church this Sunday so you could tell me I need to study and pray. Well, it's what we need to do. You can't run around those facts. Uh, Our heart is not in a position to understand truth. Do you realize that? So many times we don't work with a set of truths that we should be working with. The Bible is the only place that we can turn to to get those truths. And it's difficult to go find those truths or to try to learn those truths while you're in the heat of battle. Uh, to give you a clear understanding of that, uh, let, me, let me give you a, just a quick thought. Let's say, you're, let's say you're studying the Bible prior to being in any kind of conflict. You're studying the Bible and your study is on humility. Right? What's humility? It's really the understanding of who we are and who God is, or better said, who we're not and who God is. Isn't that really what humility is? Think about how humility levels the playing field among our peers. If I recognize how sinful I am, how quick am I going to be to point out how sinful you are? Not near as quick, right? Because who am I to judge? Uh... So that carries over, that study of humility, who I am in Christ, or who I'm not uh, in and of myself, uh, carries over to how I interact with others. So what's a natural reaction? The natural reaction of that is I put others before myself. Wouldn't that be natural? If they're as important or more important than I am, wouldn't I put others before me? So you see how that study on humility might affect the motive in my heart, might affect the way I look at the way I go through life day in and day out. So think about, now expand that to all the varied subjects that are in the Bible. And think about how they can impact you when you get into a conflict, when, a, when, a, when the conflict arises. Think about how that would impact your motive. You're going to pray and say, God, change me. You're going to study and say, God, what am I supposed to look like? So prayer and study. The time to prepare is before it gets here. I hope that message is clear. We're not as likely to prepare once it gets here. Consistent prayer, consistent Bible study, it molds our motives and it molds our conscience. You know, our conscience keeps us in line. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I I heard a a speaker a week or two ago. He was talking about the conscience and he said, you know, the conscience is something we should never violate. But we should also remember that sometimes the conscience is not right. Now, he's not saying you should violate it, but if you think about it, you can train your conscience. You know, if, you, if you've been taught all your life that it's okay to cross the street, not at the designated place to cross the street, then you don't think anything about doing it, right? It's not against your conscience, even though it might be against the law. So we've got to train our conscience. We have to train our motives. We have to train our heart. So that's the motive part. 
So the method, you say, okay, now we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty. Now, really, how do we get it done? What's the magic potion? What's the magic bullet? We've got a conflict. You just say these three magic words and everything goes away. Well, it's not quite that easy. But our motive is the most important thing. But we are going to talk about words for a minute. But before we get there, Matthew 18, verse 15. You guys are probably very familiar with this passage. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. I want to go back over that. Go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. You know, many times when we listen to the, when we hear this passage, we think about the next two or three verses, right? You go to your brother, you go talk to him, we think about church discipline. Then we're going to go take someone else and talk to him. And then when that doesn't work, we're going to take the elders or three or four. Then we're going to bring him in front of the church, and then we'll kick him out of the church, right? That's, that's that passage there. That's true. This is church discipline. But don't run past the importance of the first part of the verse here. This is how do we reconcile with our brother. Not just how do we reconcile. Obviously, there's a conflict. Someone's wrong, right? I'm either wrong for thinking that you offended me or you're wrong for offending me. If I, if I cut to the nitty-gritty, someone's be offended. So we've got we to gotta get down to it. So what's the important part of this? We must go to the person it's involving. It says it right there. Go and show him. In private. It doesn't say go to his best friend. It doesn't say go to the elders of the church first. It doesn't say go talk to anybody that you might can get some sympathy from. It says go to him. You say, well, why not? Think of all the excuses we might come up with. I don't like conflict. You know, I, you know, I, don't wanna, I just don't want to go there. Well, the conflict's already there. The question is, are we ignored or not? Uh, I don't want to lose them as a friend. I'm afraid that I will offend them. I, 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 I. Do you hear pride coming out? It's all about me. Remember we wanted to change our motives? Do you think maybe our thought process might be differently if we're thinking about the other brother? What's best for him? Is it good that my relationship with him is hurt? Is it good that he's going along doing something and not even aware that he hurt me? Is that a good thing? Is it good that I'm holding a grudge against him? Is it good that he's in sin? You see how the motive changes when the other person is first? Do you see how that motive might change how we approach the other person? What do we most often do? Go talk to someone else. Why? Well, let me give you a couple of reasons, and I want you to just... Just you. I don't want you to talk to your neighbor about this. You know, just think about it to yourself. What are some reasons we go? Well, one reason is we don't have to be near as polite. If I've got an issue with Aaron and I go over here and talk to Chris Stacker about it, I'm not going to have the same tone with Chris when I'm going to be with Aaron. Right? I don't have to be as polite. I don't have to guard my words. I probably can stretch the truth a little bit. Right? I can really tell him how bad it is. Uh, Why? I want you to think about this. Why do we do that? It really pleases us. You want to really get down to it? It pleases me. Why? Because if Aaron's done something wrong, aren't I really elevating myself a little bit by telling about how he's doing something wrong? Isn't that really what's going on? I'm putting myself ahead of him. You think about it. That's what pride is. I want to be just a little better than the other guy. I may not be perfect. I just want to be better than that guy. That's the wrong motive. Secondly, when we talk to uh, 
the involved party directly as opposed to talking to them, don't we kind of bridle our tongue a little bit? You know, you ever had one of those instances where something happened and uh, let's say someone aggravated you in a, a, a place of public service. It may have been the hamburger joint or Walmart or wherever. And you got home and you were letting your spouse know about it or letting someone else know about it. And I'm going to give them the business. Just as soon as I get down there, I'm going to give them the business. And then when you get down there, it doesn't come across quite the same way. Right? What happens is the other person knows all the facts. The third party ain't got a clue. All they know is your side of the story. But the other person knows the facts. So we have to bridle our tongue back a little bit. So there's some practical reasons that we go directly to the other person. One, if we go to the third person, it's not going to help. Two, we're probably going to hurt the third person. You say, well, can I still tell someone else about it? Sure. Think about what it's going to accomplish other than elevating our pride. You're either going to, A, let's say the other guy is dead wrong. Okay? In my analogy, Aaron was 100% wrong and I'm 100% right because we all know that's exactly the way it works out in real life. They're always 100% wrong and we're 100% right. But just for... Just for sake of argument, let's say that's the case. And I go tell Chris about it. I've only done one thing. I've compromised Aaron. That kind of gets back to why did I do it? I'm elevating me and I've compromised Aaron. All right? I've compromised him if I tell the absolute truth and I don't stretch it at all. Now let's say Aaron's 100% right and I'm 100% wrong and I go tell Chris. I'm going to tell Chris a bunch of lies because I want him on my side against Aaron, right? Isn't that what I'm doing? So now I've also compromised Aaron. I'm not much worried about Aaron. Apparently, I'm more worried about me. So what possible reason would I have for going to a third party before going to the individual that's involved? I challenge you to come up with one. I'm I'm eager to listen. I came up with one. And the only one I could come up with is I'm not really sure how to handle it, so I'm going to go talk to someone and get some godly advice. The difference is, in that situation, I want to go talk to somebody else about it. I'm talking about how to go about it. I'm not reviewing the circumstances. I'm not wallowing in the mud about what happened. I'm saying, you know, I've got this issue with Aaron. I really need to talk to him about it. I'm not really sure how to approach him about it. I'm not sure if my heart's right. I'm not sure what words to use. And it's more about the process and less about the problem. Do you guys see how that might be an acceptable reason? But rarely does that happen. Oftentimes when we get to that point, now we want to dive into the problem, don't we? And talk about it. Talk about the problem. So with our motive in check and our actions targeted toward the right person, not the wrong person, we have a much better chance of being successful. If I Remember, our motive is all about the other person, not about us. So let's talk about the words to use for just a minute. I want you to think, again, you don't need to tell your neighbor this. I want you to think about the last conflict you were involved in. This will be fun. You all should smile about it if it's far enough in the past. If it was this morning on the way to church, it might not quite be so funny. But if it was a few days ago, you could smile about it. Think about the last conflict you were in with whomever it was in. And think about the words that you used. I'll give you a second to think about them. See if how they relate to this description of words. Gracious words, kind words, loving words, true words, 
thoughtful words, holy words, sensitive words, edifying words, gentle words, comforting words, words of blessing, words of humility, words of wisdom, words of thanksgiving, unselfish words, peaceable words. What would have been the likely response for both parties if those words, those kinds of words, were the ones that were used? Both the person delivering the words and the person hearing the words. Did you see the change in motive in those words? There wasn't any words in there about, I want you to know how bad you hurt me, even though that very well may have happened. Because those wouldn't be unselfish words. We'd be concerned about them if we were unselfish. How did I do you wrong? What did I do to make you feel that way about me? What did I do? Unselfish words. You know, our words are a force of habit. If you'll think about it, we use... You ever get in one of those ruts where we use the same word several times? Uh, I had one recently. I don't remember what it was. And every time someone on television said that word, my wife would say... There's that word. You use that word. We do that. We, use, we get into a rut with our words. And sometimes the words we use, we have to make a conscious effort to change. Even if our motive is right, that doesn't guarantee our words will be right. We can have the right motive and then just let force of habit let the words come out of our mouth. You ever said anything and as soon as it got out of your mouth, it's not what you intended and the way it came out, it was wrong and it's not what you were trying to say. And That's habit. You were in the habit of using that particular phrase or those set of words and it got out of you before you realized what was going on. So don't, you got to kind of watch that. you got to kind of watch your words. And it's really, we need to change the habit of our words day in and day out, not just try to change the habit when we go to have a conflict. However, if we're in a conflict, that might be one thing that I would want to pray real heavily about. Lord, watch my mouth. Or more importantly, watch my brain. Don't let it enter my head because it's liable to come out of my mouth. Watch me closely. Don't let me focus on me. Let me focus on the other person. So Grace Fellowship, just summarizing, Grace Fellowship or any church that you attend, whether it's this one or any community that you're a part of, you're going to be in a community because you're a part of that group. That community's purpose is what unifies them. And you don't want to compromise that purpose. Christ is what unifies the church. And as we fulfill the Great Commission, as we go about doing what we've been commanded to do for Christ, we're going to interact with people. It's going to happen. And in that interaction, conflict's inevitable. The question is, what are we going to do about it? We know what conflict's source is. We know where it lies. We know that we've got to watch what we say. We know that the tongue is a very, very powerful instrument. And it can do good and bad but we also know what it's more likely to do if we don't watch it. So we need to guard our tongue in a couple of areas. Our motive and our method. We keep our motive in check by constant Bible study. Constant prayer before we get into the situation. And correct motives and correct conscience will help guide our words. That's ultimately what we want to do. Is make sure that when we are going in to solve the conflict that that's what we're there to do is resolve the conflict, not kind of waller in it, but actually get through it and past it. So my encouragement to you is when you next have this opportunity, 
Well, actually, my encouragement is, encouragement is before you have the opportunity, spend time praying and studying so you're prepared. But when you have the opportunity, think about it as you go to resolve it. Think about your motive and think about your method, how you're going to go about it. And hopefully, God will have molded us and will help with these situations. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for...